multiplication. Kingdom multiplication. <laughs> Kingdom multiplication. All righty. Guys, um, am I good to go, um, uh, Derek? Okay. Guys, in the creation account and through Genesis, multiplication is the blessing that God speaks on um, initially creation and then Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Israel. Let me say that again. In the creation accounts and through Genesis, especially the first few chapters of Genesis, multiplication is the blessing that God speaks on Adam, on creation, on Noah, on Isaac, on Israel. I mean, Genesis 1.26, multiplication. Genesis 17.6 to Abraham. Genesis 12, multiplication. Genesis 26.12 to Isaac. He goes and sows during the famine a hundredfold, multiplication. Later on to Israel, multiplication. So understand that God is the seed giver. God is the seed giver. God is the bread supplier. Guys, these are some of the some of the things I say today. If, if, if they are so one sentence, and yet they are so the rest of life. So um, I don't know how you're going to allow it to marinate, but find your own method of allowing these one sentences to marinate because it affects the rest of life. God is a seed giver. God is a bread supplier. But the seeds and the seeds that I sow are impregnated with a word or with a command of multiply. God is a seed giver. God is a bread supplier. And the seeds that I sow here on earth are impregnated with a command of multiply. I mean, go to 2 Corinthians 9.10. 2 Corinthians 9.10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. God is a seed giver. Um, we taught this long ago. It's not bread that produces bread. It is seed that produces bread. We often think it is Bread that produces bread, as in, what I earn is what will help me earn more. Not true. Bread does not produce bread. Seed produces bread. The great thing is, the God we serve is both the supplier of the seed that is required for producing bread, and he is the supplier of bread too. And then after that he says, Every time you sow seed, now be it the word that I am sowing right now, or money that I am sowing later, or attitudes that I'm sowing, regardless of what I sow, God is, regardless of what God-given seed I sow, here is what God is saying. Jacob, every time you sow, I will make sure that I impregnate what you're sowing with this command from heaven called multiply and it will increase your harvest. This is how things work on earth. This is not how the world thinks it works. But this is how God thinks it works. And God, what, whatever God thinks is what? Happens. happens. Amen. Jacob, could that also apply in the reverse like that Marion was saying? Yes, yes. Well? Yeah, because you can sow 
seeds of distrust, seeds of strife, seeds of negativity, and that reaps too. Only now the one who causes you to reap is not God. Guys, multiplication, as in when we talk about it from the angle of God or the point of God, multiplication is the transference of the life of God into a situation or into your life or into your monies or into, your, into a people. Multiplication is the transference of the life of God, the very life of God. God had hardly adds. When it comes to math, he's not good at adding. He's good at multiplying. Multiplication is the transference of the life of God to you, to your marriage, to your monies, to your ministry, to your attitudes. I'm just not limiting it to money, though we will be um, talking about multiplication in terms of God's provision. But the point is, guys, multiplication is the transference of the life of God to people, to situations, to nations, and definitely to my life and yours. It's his favor. This is who God is. Multiplication is a transference of the life of God into situations. We don't necessarily think in terms of multiplication. We think in terms of meager additions over a period of time. We need to begin to think of multiplication because that's how God really does things in the Bible. Seventy people become a nation. One man becomes 70, 70 become a nation, a nation becomes nations, fold. This is how God talks, and out of the abundance of his heart, his mouth speaks. While multiplication is initiated by God, it is sustained, while multiplication is initiated by God, it can be sustained by your positioning your capacity and your faith while multiplication is initiated and authored by God it can be sustained by the by your positioning by your capacity and by the faith that you have, by the faith of the man or woman involved in it. Guys, remember that story in Mark chapter 7, where Jesus says to Philip, I think, you go feed them. And so you got two bread, two fish of, I always mix up the quantity. Is it two? Br- five bread and two fish. Five bread and two fish he had. And he says to Philip, you go multiply them. You go feed them. And it's an impossible task. And yet, like Eddie taught us, where does the fish and bread start multiplying? In the hands of the disciples. As they begin to break it, it starts multiplying. Let me give you another example. A woman who's now beginning to pour out jugs of oil. When did the oil stop? When she ran out of jugs. Containers. God initiates and authors multiplication, but we can sustain it based on our capacity, our faith, and our positioning. Positioning as in uh, one 
knowing what you are supposed to be doing at any certain time allocates the resources required for that certain time. Knowing what you're supposed to be doing at any certain time allocates to you the resources for that certain time. And we talk about it more so that some of your questions which are coming up in your head at two miles a minute will be stilled. And I could actually see it. So <laughs> I could actually see it. Knowing. <laughs> Knowing what you're supposed to do at a certain time allocates the resources for that certain time. And so this woman who had these jugs of oil flow positioned herself through one simple step of obedience. She decided to postpone dying till she had cooked a biscuit for the holy man. She said, okay, I'll keep my dying on hold because she was going out to collect. She was going to do a last supper thing and die. And she said, okay, I'll feed you first and then I'll die hungry. And so in that one small step, she positioned herself. This is important, guys. These three steps, it's not that God can't do without this, but when you do this, you become an active part in this whole process of multiplication. You enjoy it. And you can sustain it, and sometimes sustain it um, to ridiculous lengths. You can either shoot one arrow when God says, or you can pull out three arrows and keep shooting, as Elisha did with Ahaz, the king. If these stories don't come to mind, start reading the Old Testament. Uh, so what happens is, um, Elisha told this guy Ahaz, I think his name was Ahaz, I'm not sure, I should read the Old Testament. And so, <laughs> so he, he tells him to shoot an arrow, shoot an arrow, and as many arrows that you shoot would um, show how many times God would crush the enemy. And he just takes one arrow and he shoots. And that's it. And Elisha says, why didn't you shoot more? You just shot one arrow. And had you shot more, you could have um, defeated them many times over. And so sometimes, guys, we sustain things to a ridiculous extent by, uh, by this process of allowing the word to increase. In Acts 6-7, there's a strange sentence. It says, and the word of God increased. What does that mean? How can the word of God increase? It's not a quantity. But it says, and the word of God increased. Guys, the word of God increases by the work it does through the faith of those who believe it. The word of God increases by the work it does through the faith of ones who believe it. Amazing. The word of God increases through the work it does by the faith of ones who believe it. This is what... Uh, uh, to, to, another thing I throw in is the word of God increases by the work it does through the hearing and faith of ones who believe it. Hearing and faith of ones who believe it. This is what causes some to reap 30, some to reap 60, some to reap 100. The word of God increases in your life based on the work it can do through the faith that you have in that word and the degree to which you believe it and the accuracy with which you hear it. 
So there will be us hearing what I'm teaching today. And let's assume every word I say is absolute truth from heaven. Let's just assume that for a second. Suspend your Berean um, nobility and just assume that everything I say is true. Now, all of us are going to hear it with different degrees of uh, hearing, guys. And to the extent that you hear it and believe it, to that extent you will produce this word. And it will increase for some of us, it will decrease for some of us. The points here are hearing, faith, believing. Which are similar, but any questions on that before we go on? Yeah. Um, positioning. At present, I believe this is what I'm called to do. But what if I was doing something else? It's not that I won't do well. But the resources allocated for this stage of my life in what I'm doing would not be necessarily available. Plus, I may have to strive to get it. Or positioning. If the woman in the book hadn't chosen to give the cake of flour to uh, uh, Elisha, Elisha or Elijah? Elijah, Elijah then uh, she would have missed out on uh, what happened thereafter. So positioning just helps you um, sustain God's desire to multiply things in your life. And please, as I'm speaking, yes, we'll be touching on provision, but it is not just provision that we are talking about. We're talking about multiplication in different areas of our life, guys. If I'm pursuing God, I can still end up walking in God's desires and wills. will. If I'm not pursuing God, then I can miss it. If I'm pursuing God and I find my purpose, then I can be intentional about it without making any detours. That, that's it. If, you, if you're not pursuing God as your main interest, you can miss God's purpose for you. If you're pursuing God, God will wonderfully keep bringing you back to the path that you should walk in. If you're pursuing God and you are able to hear Him and locate your purpose, now you walk intentionally as God does, without any detours, without any rabbit trails, without any um, uh, sitting under the oak tree in Jeroboam's land and a lion ends up eating you before you should be eaten. Those things won't happen. You'll get to the promised land in 15 days instead of 15,000 days. Yeah, which is 15,000 days. Don't calculate it might be a few days off. Ah, oh, the things I'm seeing today. <laughs> Guys, the revelation you must have of the nature and essence of God, the revelation you must have of the nature and essence of God is, is, is that He overflows. The revelation you must have of the nature of God is that He overflows. This is not the normal Christian expectation of God. This is not the normal Christian expectation of God. And if normal Christianity is what you're living in this area, change it because be abnormal. This is not normal Christianity. 
the revelation of the nature and essence of God that we need to have is that he overflows. Show me anything that Jesus did that was just enough. I mean, they went fishing and they had so much fish that they couldn't pull, pull the nets. He would go heal. And so doing about 30 or 40 healings, he healed all of them. When he would multiply food, instead of multiplying food so that none would be wasted, he had so much that he had to tell them to collect 12 baskets full. When he dies, he could have just died and paid for our sins. Instead he gets crucified and there was 12 in one case and 7 in another case. I'm reading things today, man. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> yes, I, I just, I'm seeing things people are saying today in whispers. <laughs> so, if you have any Valentine secrets to say to each other, just, just mind them, because that's the only way you're going to get away with it today. Um, yeah, he goes, dies on the cross, and it's not a simple death. It's a cruel death, where he pays for my sickness through his stripes, where he's chastised for my peace, where his body is broken so that I'm put together, so that my sins are paid for. Nothing he does is enough. Yeah, it's never just enough, guys. This is his nature. Jehovah Jireh, I am provider. It is his name, it is what he does. He cannot do otherwise. Jehovah Jireh, I am provider. I am in capital letters and provider if you want in small letters. I am provider. This is his nature. This is his name. He cannot do otherwise. It's just who he is. It's just who he is. You see Tater dancing here, right? He can't help it. It's just who he is. It's not put on, it's not Sunday thingy. This is how he is. He can't help it. God is like that. I am provider. This is my name. It is my nature. I cannot help it. This is what I do. Settle this in our hearts because we talked about this last week. You have to know the nature of God. You have to know his promises and then you exert faith. Do it any other way and it will get messed up and it will be stressful. Exert faith first without knowing his nature and just knowing his precious promises and you're constantly having to repeat those verses over and over again. Know his nature, know his promises from the word, exert faith. It's very restful, not stressful. Christians are more stressed than the world sometimes because they're already facing the stress of the circumstance and now they have to keep repeating these verses also. And hope that something happens. That is a double whammy. This next bit that I'm going to talk to you about, um, I grudgingly have to admit that I learned from Eric. I was thinking I won't give him credit, then he called me last night and I felt convicted. So... (laughs) Pardon? He's too young. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, so guys, I'm just kidding. <laughs> guys, uh, God is king 
over the storehouses of heaven. God is king over the storehouses of heaven. God is king over the storehouses of heaven. And what are the storehouses of heaven? It's the infinite source for our provision. God is king as an absolute ruler over the storehouses of heaven. And what do I mean by storehouses of heaven? The infinite source for provision. There is, uh, I mean, God uses the words, and see if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour out on you such a blessing. There is everything needed for life and godliness in God. And so when I say storehouse, I'm not talking about some large barn in heaven, but I'm talking about all provision required for all living. God is king over. He's got infinite resources that take care of that. But the storehouse of heaven can only be seen with eyes of faith. The storehouses, the storehouse of heaven can only be seen with eyes of faith. Heaven is the storehouse behind your bank account, your kitchen and your storehouse. We think our salary is the place from which our bank money comes, our kitchen and fridge is filled, but heaven is the storehouse behind the storehouse in your kitchen and in your bank. And it doesn't matter whether it is day by day manna that you are at present living on or whether you have amassed grain in your granaries or granaries as Joseph did in Egypt. This is important to understand guys. We have a tendency to think that day by day manna versus seven years of plenty in Egypt. We think that this is abundance. And we think this is not. This is a worldly way of looking because at the end of the day, both came from God's storehouse. But because we are suckers for security, we think like this. We think this is abundance and this is not. And so we live our whole lives for this. And I'm not saying this is the way to live or this is the way to live. I'm just showing you a difference between ways of living. That both come from God's storehouse. Did manna come from God's storehouse? Every day for how many days? 15,000 days plus. Every day. Did in Genesis 41 verse 47 it says that Joseph began to gather for the next seven years grain and the land was blessed with plenty so that for seven years he collected and amassed grain. Where did that come from? It was initiated by God who sent Joseph as a man to rescue a nation in Egypt. So that came from God. And we see that as abundance. But this we don't see as abundance. Amazing, eh? How our minds 
I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about me, you and the rest of the world. We think like this. So what do we do? We build barns. And you remember what happened to the last guy who built barns. Not really, Mariam, because th- that is in the context of um, in everything give thanks. I mean, when you have a lot, when you have a little, give thanks. Here I'm saying that this is not little and this is not a lot. Both are from the Father and both take care splendidly of me. But for some reason, because we are suckers for security, and I'm deliberately using the word sucker because it's so Greek, that... Um, <laughs> this is what happens and we start seeing this is abundance and so this is what we focus on and sometimes when you build barns of sustenance here on earth it blocks out the pure light of God's liberality sometimes when you build barns of sustenance here on earth it blocks out the light of God's pure liberality as in it blocks you from seeing Give us this day our daily bread sometimes. Sometimes, not off. I'm not saying always, because I've seen guys who live here and live really well, live here and live really well. And sometimes I see this happening as a pattern in life. Sometimes when you build barns to, to provide your own sustenance or to stabilize your sustenance, you block out the pure light of God's liberality. Sometimes when you build barns to stabilize your sustenance, you block out the light of God's pure, you block out the pure light of God's liberality. There is no harm living here. There is no harm living here. Both are godly. And sometimes life will be like this. And that is when we say with Paul, I have learned to live in plenty and I have learned to live in little. But praise be to God who supplies all my needs. And needs didn't mean basic sustenance. Because then God would have put us on tablets for the rest of our life. Just eat this Jacob, full of protein. (coughs) No. That's not how it works, guys. It's not... Uh, it's amazing how we can... We'll talk about that later. We, we seem to thrive at minimizing God so that He can fit within our expectations and so that we don't get disappointed. God does not heal always. So now that I state that, I don't have to worry about Him not healing me. God does not always provide. Occasionally He wants us to uh, wallow in poverty so that we know how it is. Great, so now we don't have to expect anything from him. God is a good father, but sometimes he disciplines us and breaks our legs so that we can sit and study what he needs to. Great, now if I break my leg, I can't go to him. Minimizing and diminishing God so that we can reduce him to within our expectations or slightly beyond so that he's a very human God. Even when he was human, he was in that way. I see that hand, sister. Go ahead. Liberati was a very famous... <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Liberality is 
uh, guys, sometimes what happens is when uh, when I want to stabilize my source of sustenance, I, I, I can easily not not be daily dependent on God. Whenever I come into large amounts of money, which happens two, three, four times a year, like ridiculously large amounts of money in my understanding, one of the things I do in two or three days after that money goes into my bank is I go open my bank account and tell the Lord, Father, here it is. This looks so good in my bank. I don't want to release a dollar of this. As long as it stays like this, everything looks good. Otherwise, it's not fun. And then I say, Father, and that's exactly what I want to get rid of now. So here is all this money. Do with it as you please. I release it so that you can have me do anything with it as you please. And I've got to do it within the first two or three days because otherwise... Stability in sustenance has the ability, ah, I'm being so poetic today. Stability in sustenance has the ability to somehow cocoon you inside it, where it becomes your safe fortress. It becomes an idol. This doesn't mean that you go spend it on Canuck tickets. You're just releasing it to God to do as He pleases. You're giving up ownership. That's all you're doing. You're giving up ownership and you're immediately going into stewardship. Is it just about money or is it about all, all things. All things. Your children, your home, your ministry, Acts 29, everything. No ownership. Learn how to steward. But please don't see this as God and see this as not God. Life will go through these cycles, guys. We'll talk about that. Unless my eyes of faith are open to the storehouses of heaven, I will continue to label the storehouse of Egypt as abundance and I will label the widow's jug of oil as lack. Amazing, eh? That widow's oil flowed like crazy. It would have kept flowing if the city was as big as Vancouver. It stopped when there were no more containers to hold it. So you... Is the widow's jug of oil lack? No, it's not. It is as abundant as Egypt's storehouses. But because we don't use eyes of faith, because our eyes are glazed over with the jaundice of how the world sees things, we begin to see this as stability and as plenty, and we see this as lack. Not true, guys. Not true. Eyes of faith will allow me to label both the storehouse of Egypt and the widow's jug of oil as abundance. The widow's jug of oil is in 1 Kings 17.6. Good stuff, eh, from Eric? Yep. Guys, the widow of Zarephath had no lesser storehouse behind her little jug, jug than the Egyptian empire had behind its granaries. 
the widow of Zarephath in 1 Kings 17 had no less of a storehouse behind her little jug than the Egyptian empire had behind its massive granaries. Amazing, eh? Now when you begin to see like this, guys, it changes the way you approach things. Because you begin to see that he is someone who overflows. You begin to see he lives in a command called multiply. You begin to see that there is a storehouse which has for you infinite provision. And as I speak this, guys, take your eyes off. I sound like a faith speaker, but it's true. Take your eyes off your present circumstances. Because your present circumstances try to nullify the word I'm speaking to you right now. Take your eyes off those circumstances. Because they will nullify the word I'm speaking. Because our present circumstances have thoughts that we begin to rise, that raise up in our heads. And these thoughts are the traditions of men because the world measures things a certain way. The world measures things in terms of stability and security. We measure things simply in terms of God. And by the way, even if you save up, we are not sustained by what has been saved up, but by daily dependence. That's what I meant by barns can block the pure light of liberality. We are not sustained by what we save up. We are sustained by what? By daily dependence. By daily dependence on God. Because neither the money you accumulate nor your ability to hold it in reserve in TD Bank actually will keep it safe. I've met men who had millions. And the same man I met again two years later, and he was in a really big shopping mall trying to sell gold, white gold, at a reasonable price so that he could have some money. Two years before that I was sitting with him and he was he was rolling in money. He didn't know how to spend it. And two years later he's got boxes with him in this really glitzy mall where rich people come. And he's sitting in the food court and then at the Hyatt Hotel looking for prospective clientele who can buy his boxes of white gold off him because money took wings and flew away. An idol will always disappoint, eh? Renounce your means of sustenance so that you own nothing and steward everything. Renounce your means of sustenance so that you own nothing and steward everything. Renounce your means of sustenance. Renounce, not... Renounce is to say... uh, Renounces to say, I deny myself ownership over this means of stability or sustenance. I deny it. I renounced my Indian citizenship when I took Canadian citizenship. But I'm no longer defined by Indian citizenship. Renounce your means of sustenance and stability or security and you will end up owning nothing but stewarding everything. Jesus lived like this. 
Paul is not my hero. Peter is not my hero. Jesus is. Because he was confident of the essence and nature of his father, of the word multiply and of the whole idea of overflow. He was confident of it. Remember, he had to take care of a few brothers and sisters and a mother because his parents had, his dad had died early. And knowing who he was like, he'd have taken up that responsibility seriously. He had to make sure that his disciples were fed. And this didn't mean that he could go pull out fish from the sea every time because he could only do what his father was asking him to do. He wasn't some perfect carpenter. I'm sure he messed up a few chairs and tables. But he knew one thing, that he lives in a command called multiply, that his father in his essence and nature is one who causes overflow. And that he could see this or this as coming from God's storehouse. Guys, let me add this also. Sometimes God's Holy Spirit, or sometimes the Holy Spirit, has to teach me afresh through a process of humbling. Is that scriptural? Deuteronomy 8.3 And so I took you through the desert, fed you manna, and humbled you. Why? So that you may know that man shall not live by bread, or personal means of sustenance, but shall live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Every so often, and by humbling I don't mean something nasty, every so often, God will do this, eh? Why? So that this never becomes your security, this becomes your abundance, and this never becomes the place you live in, this also is abundance. What a different way of saying things. So regardless of whether you have a barn behind your house, which is loaded with hundreds of dollars, or whether you have a little jug in your kitchen that has a tiny bit of oil, this is brilliant. Too often, guys, our mind wanders to the how of provision. And the moment our mind wanders to the how of provision, it diminishes the who. Or it, it, it kind of um, causes us to lose sight of the who. Because our minds are, sure, God has a storehouse. Sure, God can provide. Sure, God overflows. Sure, God is provider, but how is he going to do it for me? He can do it for Jacob because Jacob goes to these different places and he taught us this thing called first fruits and then he gets an offering from this church and then someone else may like him and give him. Sure, it works for these pastor types. But what about me? Oh, by the way, this pastor type spends a heck of a lot of... Wrong word. Spends a heaven load of money on trips that he goes to and doesn't charge for anybody for the travel by the way but that's a different story the point being whenever we begin to think of the how how am I going to get this what happens is immediately that the who gets blocked out 
you lose sight of the who because we are wondering how will this come. So we are thinking maybe it's going to be the Christmas bonus. So now we are waiting for the Christmas bonus and then the blooming bonus comes along and it isn't as big as you thought because your boss was miserly this week. Or you think it's that financial investment and you're hoping that the oil price will go up again. Or it is this envelope that you receive from the church and you're hoping it's not just saying happy birthday that there's some money inside. And you open it and it's no money inside and you think to yourself, different ways we think, man. Because we are focusing on the how, not the who. May I suggest to you that most of us see our work as the source of our provision. When you wonder how God is going to do it, you begin to see the source as your provision. When you wonder how God is going to do it, you see the source as your provision. This is one thing I tried really hard not to do. Eh? When, when I know that there is something ahead that I need to now prep for, I, I, one of the things I do is, Father, thank you that you are able to provide. I've got to stop trying to help you and try to guess what you're going to do. Let it be. Whenever you begin to try to figure out the source of how God is going to do it, you see the source as your provision. So we think it's a Christmas bonus. So we think it's a gift from a generous friend. So we think it's a financial deal. Do you realize that most of us see our salary and work as, us, as the source of income? And that's absurd. We see our salary and work as our source of income. And I'd like to say that it is absurd. Because it's going to be limited for the rest of your life, guys. You know how much you're going to get every month. For the rest of your life, that's what it's going to be. Ouch! That can't be. It has to be beyond that. God is my source, which means there is no idea or limit to what can happen either through the abundance of Egypt or through the jug of oil. I can't look at my job as a source of my income because I know I'm going to get this every month for the next 20 years. And there's no guarantee you won't lose the job. So now the job becomes the, 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 the thing that the enemy uses to continuously prod you, provoke you, put fear in you, bring the insecurity, bring instability. Why? Because this is where everything is coming from. Even though you know God is a supplier, the source becomes the main place. Guys, it doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter whether you are um, someone who works harder than employed people like Dagmar and yet is retired, or whether it is Lance, who hasn't started working yet. God is the source, and it's not your job that is the source. Got to, got to make this shift, guys. Go ahead, Renita.
something and the Lord answered with something. And uh, through that business, through his favor and provision, um, the way they pay me is through the United States, they send you a card and it has a MasterCard thing on it, which Canada would never do to me right now. And the money on here is not money that I owe, it's money that I've earned. Given, yeah. Guys, it's fascinating how these things work. Let me remind you of a verse that I always say. You inhabit what you think and your thoughts will take you somewhere. I just love that line. You inhabit what you think and your thoughts will take you somewhere. Whenever I say I love a line, it means I didn't come up with it. And so, as you begin to inhabit this way of thinking, a strange thing will happen to us, guys. We will see more and more of it. Because what you think is what you inhabit and your thoughts will take you somewhere. And so, I'm not saying that live like this. This is not how God has me live 24-7, guys. I'm saying that both are from God and learn to live happily in both, knowing where the jug of oil, uh, how the jug of oil will begin to flow and knowing how your granaries will be filled. It's not an either-or. I would suggest to you that the day it becomes either or, you will find Deuteronomy 8.3 happening every now and then so that God can refocus your attention. Or learn to live here being dependent on Him daily. That's another good way to live. If you're not able to trust Him with the jug of oil, it's harder to trust Him here. This becomes your main um, source. Guys, let me read that line again. Do you realize that most of us see our salary and work as the source of income? And I've written next to it, absurd. And yet, Elijah, and I've written in brackets, LOL, I wasn't laughing at Elijah, uh, the rest of it. And yet Elijah, LOL, was sustained by ravens who neither sow nor reap or gather into barns. <laughs> and a widow who had no bread and was preparing to die. So Elijah is sustained by birds who don't spin or toil, reap or sow or gather into barns. And so God says, okay, Elijah, I shall supply you. Yes, Send me a benefactor. Here they come. And they're the ones who supply him. And then when that gets over, he says, now go to the rich man who lives in Zarephath. No, no, no. Now go to the poorest of the poor in Israel. Go to a widow. And by the way, just so you know, she's preparing to die, so go there fast. So he gets there before she can pick up the sticks and die. And these are the people. It is the poorest that God supplies Elijah through storehouse, man. Oh, that would have sounded to her. Guys, do you get this? It is so brilliant. I mean, I read this. Herewith ends what Eric has taught me, and it was brilliant. So cultivate, a, I didn't say the teaching had ended, I said what Erica taught me, and I heard some rustling of paper somewhere. So <laughs> cultivate a wealth mentality, guys. 
cultivate a wealth mentality. What is a wealth mentality? A wealth mentality is a way of thinking and living. A wealth mentality is a way of cultivate a wealth mentality as in a way of thinking and living. Break away from the poverty mentality that I learned as a virtue from my culture, from some doctrine and from my parents. All of us are guilty of that, eh? Our parents lived in a different time where the values... Not a different time. Our parents lived in a time where these things were not understood or taught. Some of our parents were fortunate enough to learn these things and live a certain way. Many of us, our parents were not. And so where did we grow up learning the way we see these things? At home. Where did we learn it? In our culture. Where did we learn it? In a church that perhaps had a doctrine that preached that God will be wealthy when you get to heaven, but right now he's not into... Any help to you except supplying your needs. And so we grow up with this mentality. Guys, break out of the poverty mentality that was taught as a virtue to you by your culture, your doctrines and your parents. Cultivate a wealth mentality and a wealth mentality isn't some kind of prosperity preaching. As you can see, this is not necessarily prosperity preaching. Cultivate a wealth mentality that thinks and lives differently. Because the front line of attack, and I've taught this before, the front line of attack is either about rent and food, money and the lack of it. The front line of attack is always about rent, food, money and the lack of it. That's the front line of attack in all our lives, guys. Besides some habitual sins that we may cultivate, This is the front line of attack. And yet Jesus makes a highly irresponsible statement. Jesus makes a highly irresponsible statement in Matthew 6.25 when he says, Do not make these practical details of life your primary concern or worry. How irresponsible is that? Most teachers on stewardship today wouldn't say anything like that. They tell you to save up so that On a rainy day, you have help. Nothing wrong with saving up for your children. You must leave your children an inheritance. Nothing wrong saving up to buy a car, get a new Hummer. But saving for a rainy day is a different aspect, which we won't go into right now. But the point is this, guys. Jesus makes this statement in Matthew 6.25 saying, Do not make these practical details of your life your primary concern or worry, because these primary concerns and not the devil will choke the word in you. Wow! It's not the devil that will choke the word in you, that will choke my will for you. It is this primary concern and worry with money and stuff like that. How could he say that? Because he knows about this. He knows the nature of his father. And he presented it to us. And our common sense then begins to scream. It was fun watching um, Rob bring the kids. First this big guy comes out of the van. And then a thin guy comes out of the van, lands. And then you think it ends there. And out comes Maximo. And you think it ends there. And out comes this little one. Then all three of them. Like one of those cartoon thingies that you watch. It is so cute. 
I don't know why that came up, but let's move on. Something else, yeah. Our common sense screams and reinterprets this verse, see? Eh? Our common sense scream common sense screams and reinterprets Matthew six twenty five. When Jesus says, Do not be worried about things, we'll come up with some other interpretation for it. And really Jesus didn't mean that. We, we reinterpret it so that we can endorse or legitimize what Christians today call, what, what God today calls careful unbelief. There's this amazing word in Christianity that we rarely hear about. It's called careful unbelief. This is where most of us live. Careful unbelief. Careful unbelief is when Jesus has said something, and that's good, Jesus. We are glad you could help your disciples and yourself out that way. But we here, the world has changed dramatically. So while we believe that, we also have to be careful. And so we trust you, but not to the extent that you are literally interpreting that scripture. So we'll dwell in careful unbelief. We will see you as provider. We will bless you and quote Philippians 4.19. But please... Don't expect us to live like that. We are not birds, nor are we flowers. It's careful unbelief. Take the pressure of provision on yourself, and where you go and what you do with life will be ordered by mammon. Take the pressure of provision on yourself, and where I go... When I take the provision of when I take the pressure of provision on myself, then where I go and what I do is commanded or is um, ordered by Mammon. This just flies in the face of all logic. That's why careful unbelief is such a safe place to live when it comes to things of provision. When Adam abandoned his life source, he was discharged to work the ground in sweat. When when Adam abandoned his life source, he was discharged to work the land in sweat. And so Jesus says it differently. He says, hey Jacob, seek first in time, in place, in order and importance. Seek first. There you go. That's the correct response. (laughs) That's one person I won't be doing that with again. (laughs) Instead, seek first in time, in place, in importance, in terms of treasure. Seek first my rule and reign, Jacob. My rule and reign in your life. And all other things that the pagans chase after will be added to you. Seek first. My rule and reign and my ways of doing things. And all these things that the pagans chase after will be added to you. Any questions before we turn the... I think that probably what's supposed to say will be multiplied unto you. Will be multiplied unto you. That's the actual Greek sense of the word from my faint recollection to the best of my knowledge any questions guys guys 
this may, this is completely unreasonable but besides that any questions how do we do it pardon how do we do it you inhabit what you think, think. So change, the change your thinking how do you change thinking by hearing how do you hear by listening to this tape by reading uh, your notes over and over again because it requires the renewal of my mind and once i hear and renew my mind now i have the option of doing what i have just heard and have had renew my mind and as i do that i will find that my thoughts are now taking me somewhere i'm more aware of what's happening around me in these areas i begin to see god differently your life is simply an outworking of how you see god and how you think god sees you your life is simply an outworking of how you see god in different areas and how you see god see you if you think he sees you as a son you'll find that the way you live is very different if you think he sees you as a servant your response is very different if you see god as a judge you will find that you will judge too and you will always feel judged if you see god as one who <laughs> Mark <laughs> So so Rhonda I need to talk to you after the service <laughs> So if you see God as a judge and with no mercy that's the way you behave it is fascinating guys how are uh, how how often in life how often in a year you need to upgrade your image of god and your image of yourself through the eyes of god uh, these are not profound manipulation of words guys i'm telling you the truth let me repeat it again because it'll it'll so radically help you every year you have to at least once or twice upgrade your image of god through understanding him through going over what has been taught through reading the word and upgrade your image of yourself through the eyes of god and if we don't do this there's no upgrading moses had to have this happen the prince of egypt if he didn't have any upgrade when he was at the burning bush if he didn't have an upgrade on mount sinai of the image of god and an image of himself because he was not in a very nice place in the back side of sinai before he came to the burning bush but as he began to see god differently and began to see how god sees him and he struggled with it god had to get a little irritated at one point and say who made your mouth but as that happens moses begins to change and yet through all those changes they said of him he was the meekest man who lived on the earth oh i pray god that you go and listen to this and that it changes I'm, please understand i'm going to listen to this cuz these shifts have to happen in my head For, i've got another 30 40 50 years man got to get there <sighs> bless you guys as you go you don't know how deeply impactful this message can be uh, how it can really change your insights and changing your insights change how life is met that's why i'm sounding like a whimpering kind of guy cuz it is